If you're following along in the bulletin, uh, then you can find the reading uh, for today on page 7. You'll notice there are uh, three readings, and they correspond to the three points that you see uh, on page 9. And they basically deal with the whole reason we uh, have fallen away from God and how this happened that we fell away from God. What's the nature of our uh, sin against God? What's the nature of our opposition to God? What do we think about God? How do we feel toward God? How do we regard God by nature? These are the kinds of things we want to explore this morning and the best way to do this is to go back to the beginning, see where we went wrong, so to speak, with Genesis 3. Romans 1 uh, looks at the same thing, but from a bit different perspective. Uh, and we'll look at that more briefly, but I do want to bring in this idea and show some of its implications. Uh, so let's begin then with Genesis 3, uh, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Genesis 3. And now Romans chapter 1. This is Paul's uh, great exposition on human sin. And this is the very beginning of that section of this great letter where he describes uh, the nature of human sin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then 2 Corinthians 
chapter 4. Paul is talking about the gospel, proclaiming the good news of Christ, and he's dealing with the fact that many don't respond to that. So why is that? And then the other question, why is it that we have responded when others don't? So it's a great little passage to explore that. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world and God of this world can be identified as the serpent in Genesis 3. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, as we come to your word, open up our hearts to receive it, to love it, to trust it, to live it out in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this word that you've brought to us and give us grace that we will submit to it and live in its freedom and in its happiness and see the good God who has given us his good word all for our good. Lord, bless us. To that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, account in Genesis 3 is the butt of so many jokes, really in some ways throughout history, but especially in our modern day. But the Bible treats it with absolute seriousness. And the Bible, the apostles, Jesus himself treat this as the way things really were. And it has such insight to help us understand who we are and what the nature of our falling away from God really is. Now, it begins with the serpent. And in some way we see, though the serpent was owned, what was speaking to her, and the whole thing's a bit weird and we're not sure what happened before this time and why this could happen. But as it goes on, we gather that the Snake is something greater than just the snake or dragon, as he might have been at that point. Um, that he has been, this, this serpent has been taken over by Satan himself. Just briefly, uh, the best we can tell from Scripture is that Satan is a fallen angel. He was created good, as at the end of Genesis 1. God looked at everything he made, visible and invisible, and he declared it good. But at some point, uh, he 
this one who is in the upper echelon of nobility and power among the angelic ranks. We get a little bit of picture of this when uh, in Jude he describes the great angel Michael, who's an archangel, one of the great angels in heaven. Nonetheless, when he comes against Satan, says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. So Jude is, is saying, those of you who speak so lightly of Satan, Michael won't even do that. So Satan has enormous power, enormous influence. We believe that uh, a, a certain number of angels uh, fell with him. We can't understand why he fell away. Somehow in his exaltation, he was not satisfied. He could not rejoice in the glory of God. He could not delight in God. He could not go out of himself. In the end, if it couldn't be him, he was not going to play along. He had to be the center and nothing else would do. And of course, that's exactly what he is after here. For us to turn away from God being the center of our lives and the trust of our lives. And for us to turn in on ourselves. So the whole bent of this temptation, it is disobedience, of course, to do what God has forbidden. But the motivation is what is at the forefront in this passage. That is, how did Satan argue to her to get her to do this terrible thing? Now, before we go on, it it may be important to think a little bit about this tree that God had set apart and said, you shall not eat of this tree. I know some people, in fact, early on, I thought a lot happened just because we ate one piece of fruit. I mean, come on, you know, like the whole world plunges into darkness because of one little act of one little piece of fruit. But we have to understand this tree stood for the whole relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. It represented their trust, their honor, their love, their, um, their, their adoration. It was the whole of their relationship in symbol here. And so to eat of this tree means we turn our backs on God. We refuse you as our God. We deny you. We reject you. We despise you. We will not depend upon you anymore. We will not take you as our treasure. We will strike out on our own. And we'll explore that further. But we we need to understand that this uh, has everything to do with their relationship with God. It's not just this isolated act of, of one piece of fruit, so to speak. But the whole, as I've said, the whole bent of this temptation is to separate them from dependence upon God and dependence upon his word. To alienate them from God, to cut the relationship of trust and involvement, this of vulnerability and honesty and openness to God. They were, he wanted to shut them off from God. And the, the kind of feel, now I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth, but I'm trying to give you the kind of feel for what he is saying to Eve in this case. Because after the several questions, he gets 
to that uh, momentous verse, you will surely not die. But here's the real point of it. He did challenge God's word, but then he sets before her the idea that God is holding out on her. The whole focus of this temptation is to discolor the character of God. To declare to her he is not trustworthy. It's as though he's shaking his head, you know, in kind of a reaction, you know, God, 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 what am I going to do with you? There you go again, making your wild claims about death, protecting your territory, building your walls, digging the moat, keeping everybody out so they can't be like you. They can't have the privileges you have. No, he just gives you this lie about dying. It's just a scarecrow he put out in the field. It's not real. Nothing will happen. You've got to understand that he is trying to hold you down and keep you down. He's gotten there. He's in the God club and he's burned the bridge behind him or wants you to think that he's burned the bridge behind him. So you won't even try to get there. And of course, the implication is from Satan, I have your best interests at heart. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. He's out for himself, to protect himself, to to guard his turf. It makes him out to be this kind of scared, measly, and malevolent God. Certainly not a good God, and there's only... there's. If he's not a good God, what is he's an evil God. This is the picture that is being painted by Satan. He knows that your eyes will be open. He knows that you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there's a sense in which this is true, but here's his he makes his case by giving us half truth and describing a situation. Uh, in ways that doesn't really get at what it truly is. Like a man offering child candy in order to hurt that child, if the child will entrust itself to him. And you could say, well, technically he did give the child... No, that's not what this is about, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I promise you I'll give you... And he does. But it's why he did it and what he's after, you see. And that's what's happening here. You want fulfillment. You want excitement. You want uh, nothing to hold you back, Eve, surely. You want pleasure and fun. You want to have it all. You're not going to have it with this God putting you under his thumb. You don't need him. You can't trust his word. And one of the tragedies, many here, is that he's offering for them to be like God. And one of the, the big things underscored in yellow highlight, put a star by it, point arrows to it, is when he made man, he says, I'm making man in my image. Like he made them in his image. And then I love how it says right after he made them in his image. Like God, he made them, see? The point is, do you get this? Stop, listen. 
like God he made them. It's an astonishing statement. And this is not just applied to the kings who they supposedly were the one human beings that were in the image of God and reflected God. But here, uh, breaking into that world is the book of Genesis saying, every human being has that dignity. Every human being represents God, not just the king. And of course, the king does that so that the king can kill whoever he wants and do whatever he wants. So we weren't lowly underlings on earth. We were the apex of creation, the way all of Genesis 1 builds to that final creation And then God said, let us make man in our image. He, within creation, man is the center of attention, the lords of creation under God's sovereign rule. And yet, here is this terrible temptation. We were to exercise authority over all creation, including this serpent. What happened was here is we're betraying our trust of lordship. And actually, every time we do not exercise self-control, we are betraying our lordship. That's the place of exercising our true and noble lordship in the earth Not to submit to something of the earth, to abuse it and misuse it and try to extract life from it or depend on it for life and meaning, for ultimate relief and comfort outside of God. That's to abdicate our throne, our lordship from that position of nobility where we to oversee creation and use it for good under God and for God and in the presence of God. And of course, This temptation is with us now, right? That anything can become our addiction, large or small, partial or all-consuming. But we in Christ can be restored to true lordship in the world. So you see, this, this is a striking at the root of humanity and what we were meant to be by our submitting to part of creation, this act of treachery that he is tempting them toward because we are to oversee and care for the world on God's behalf as his representatives exclusively made in his image, exclusively fitted for this lordship. But we are submitting in this case, not to God, but to one of his creatures. And that impinges on Romans one, doesn't it? He says, we turn from the creator to the creature. And the first one we turn to is even Satan himself. And here is to me, this, this is the part of this that gets to me as much as anything else I should say, okay? They were taking themselves out of the care of God. And they were putting themselves into the care of another. We're putting themselves into the care of another. That's what every one of us does in our sin. 
This is the lure to step away from God's care and oversight that is expressed in his word. That is expressed in his gracious, kind commands that tell us how to be full and rich, abundant human beings, bringing light and good to others by following his word. But this is an attack on God's goodness. It's an attack on his trustworthiness. It's an attack on the goodness and trustworthiness of his commands. Despise his word. Turn away from this word that says you will die because it's false. You can't depend upon it. Walk away from him. Put yourself into the care of another. And that absolutely of necessity is what happens when we walk away from God's word. We refuse his word. And this is where he expresses his love and care for us in his word. And we put ourselves in the care of something else. Whatever made up God or spirit or saint or power or force or whatever human value, power, prestige, wealth, sensuality, pleasure, entertainment, gaming, texting. It can be even family, friendship, work, accomplishment, technology, the arts, whatever. Good things in and of themselves, but they're not God. And none of them, none of them will do us any good in themselves. And the bitter irony is that the one safe place, the one place of fulfillment and satisfaction, the one place of joy and relationship, the only place where our true humanity can burst out and flourish, that is what Satan would lure us away from. That's why Jesus said in John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning. He wanted to murder us. And he did by what? Drawing us away from God, not to trust in God anymore. So Satan paints this picture that he's a malevolent, secretive God trying to restrict and she takes him uh, he, she adopts his mentality and breaks away from God and so it is with us we by nature simply do not entrust ourselves to God we do not depend upon him we do not think of him as good that's why we refuse his word that's why we refuse his commands and tied to that is this <clears throat> statement in uh, Romans 1 that we do not particularly honor him and thank him. I would say that that we don't enjoy him. We don't delight in him. It's this, it, you know, take this illustration. You've probably been in this situation or at least seen the situation where someone has seen a certain person and they're Maybe they've talked with them and they're just really uh, taken with this person and the, uh, a boy to a girl, girl to a boy. And, and they're in a room with a, a lot of people, but she cannot take her eyes off of him. And everything she does is in relationship to him and hoping that she can talk to him and wondering if they can meet again. Everything is focused on him. And yet for us, 
It's not that we can't take our eyes off God. We can hardly keep our eyes on God. We're not drawn and like, oh, I just so adore you and love you. I want to honor you and enjoy you and everything that you are. I want more of you and more of you. I can't take my eyes up. That By nature, that's the way we are. I know in my own case that that was definitely the way it was with me. We have this problem with God that we can hardly stir up by nature positive feelings toward God. They're negative. We want to ignore him, push him to the side. We don't even think about him. We don't include him. His word means nothing to us by nature. We all know how difficult it is even when we're children and sometimes for our own children to try to stir up some feeling, even even as they're doing religious things, the concern at times is what? Do they feel this? Do they really love him? Do they adore him and enjoy him? So this is our problem that we don't trust him. We don't find him trustworthy. And you might put it this way, God kind of grates on us kind of grates on us. We'd like less of him, not more of him. And that's why this amazing statement is made by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, because even, even as God is proclaiming through the good news, the, the majestic work of God, that this God, in fact, is so unlike what Satan said, so unlike that, that Satan made him out to be this grasping, you know, jealous, selfish God. And specifically, it's interesting in Philippians 2, uh, Paul says, because he was God or since he was God, he did not think it's something to be grasped at. He didn't, one translation is, it was not something to use to his own, own advantage. Specifically not what you said, Satan. In fact, it's the very opposite, that he was lavish. He poured himself out, even to the point of becoming our servant, even to the point of being a servant to die for us on the cross. That is who God is. How different could that be? But that's the good news. Announcing who God really is. Announcing what God has done for us through his own son. To give his son for us. And in John 12, Jesus is talking about now, as he's approaching his death, now the glory of God is going to be made known. And isn't that an astonishing juxtaposition? That the glory of God is being made known in the horrible suffering, unimaginable suffering of the kind that Isaiah says we want to turn our face from it. It's so horrible. That's where glory breaks out because it's the glory of the God of astonishing eternal love. Here passionately giving himself, recklessly giving himself that he might have us for his own, that we might be his bride forever. What kind of God is this? He's a God that you can entrust yourself to. But here's the sad thing, and Paul points it out here. 
These are the last few words. That the God of this world, the one who sought to blind Eve to the goodness of God, right? That was the point. Even now, for unbelievers, he blinds them. He blinded me. He would, And if God hadn't fixed it, I would still be blinded. But notice the remarkable statement, the last sentence there in 2 Corinthians. He compares what God does for us to what God did when he created the world and said, let light shine out of darkness. And he said, the one who did that in a similar, powerful, glorious way has shown into our hearts so that we could see this beauty of Christ. So that we wouldn't be blinded like a blind person before a gorgeous sunset that he can't see. That he would shine into our hearts so that God can say to us effectively, you thought I was untrustworthy, but oh, I am supremely trustworthy. And I want to win your trust I want you to come to me gladly and put yourself into my hands so that I can care for you and love you and transform you forever uh, throughout your life and be with you forever. It is wonderful that in the Old Testament, the promise was that he would one day put his awe or put his fear in our hearts, Jeremiah says. And some... 130 verse 4 tells us where that all really comes from. It says, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared or that we may be in awe of you. That's where all begins. That's where this honor and gratitude and worship and adoration begins at the point of saying, you are the gracious God who acted through your son, suffered beyond imagination to forgive us our sins, that becomes the gateway for all of our worship and honor and love to him and is the basis for our whole continuing relationship, the forgiveness that he gives. Oh, may he put that awe, that astonishment in our hearts for who he is so that we gladly will entrust ourselves to him. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, bless us to understand your goodness And to refuse the lies, the murdering lies of the enemy who would turn us away from our gracious, kind God so that we would put ourselves into the care of another and not the care of this God. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see the beauty and goodness of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.